this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That's the digmeoutunion.com. It's where you go to hear such things as the live stream for this episode and all of our episodes. If you want to hear it as the sausage gets made. <laughs> if you want to hear Tim fumble around with phones and Skype. Right. Yeah, that's that's truly exciting. I was just thinking that hearing sausage get made is, is probably the Ooh. worst aspect of the sausage getting made. <laughs> like if you had muted video, it would be like, okay, but when you have to actually hear this, the noises, then it wouldn't ruin it. That's a good point. Yes. So, Jay, we mentioned Patreon. Yes. Back with us, once again, one of our patrons to pick their 12-month episode, Brandon Trammell. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited. Now, last year, it was Ultimate Fake Book. That was your pick, correct? Yes, that was a blast. And it was fun because we had a couple of gentlemen on from the band. And since then, they have announced that they're working on a new record. So we're psyched about that. I actually just got my Ultimate Fake Book t-shirt from the uh, campaign to support making the record. So uh, it says Real Drums Forever, which uh, I get looks at the record store when I wear that shirt. Like, (laughs) oh, the old guys are happy that I'm wearing a shirt that's uh, (laughs) about real instruments. Um, So this year, Brandon, tell everyone what record you selected. Uh, this time I picked a record that felt seasonal to me, something that I always pull out when it gets warm, when I'm cranking you know, the windows down and, and driving. Uh, I picked The Figs Lo-Fi at Society High. Now, how'd you, how'd you stumble upon this record? Um, I, I want, I'm not 100% positive, but I think what happened was I saw The Figs play at a music festival that um, Detroit used to do these free festivals that the radio station would put on, and it would just be stacked every year. Really good bands. Um, and one year I went and I saw, I think, Super Chunk and the Afghan Wigs and Morphine, which is, the lineup was insane. And during the day, I believe The Figs played one of the smaller stages, and I went out that day and bought the record. Excellent. So, we just so happen, we got on the interwebs on the Facebook and hit up the Figs page and said, Hey, Mike, would you like to join us? And so joining us from, I think, Boston? Is that right, Mike? Yeah, yeah, Boston. A little bit north of, the, of Boston, but in the area. Excellent. From the Figs, Mike Jen. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me, guys. Does that ring a bell, that show in Detroit with those bands? Yeah, was it like above a um, parking garage? Absolutely, yeah. That's where they used to yeah. put them, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I remember that. I, um, Morphine, uh, was Weezer on that show? Probably, yeah. I saw them at one of those, so it must have been that one. Because um, that was like the, I think that was, I remember that show mostly because I had lunch 
in the backstage area with Mark Sandman from Morphine, oh, and that was the one time I kind of hung with him. And, uh, we just, you know, chatted over lunch. Uh, but that's really the only thing I remember that that show. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you could just give us sort of, and and our listeners who who may not be familiar with the band, just a brief history of. I know you you said you're in a part of outside of Boston now, but I, mm-hmm. the band started when you guys were pretty young, right? In a different part of yeah. the not that not Boston. We well, we started in upstate New York. Okay, in, um, a little place called Saratoga Springs, uh, which is about a half hour north of Albany. And we started when we were in high school, um, 1987. Uh, I was 15, I think. Um, Pete Donnelly, who plays bass, he was 14 at the time. Um, so a lot of people, you know, because they discovered us in the 90s, think of us as a 90s band, but I always thought of us as, as an 80s band because <laughs> uh, we started in the 80s. But yeah, long time ago. And I've actually and, been uh, to Saratoga Springs. That's an isolated mm-hmm. area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, it, it, it's weird because it's when you're a kid, it growing up there. Yeah, in the especially in the winter, it's very isolated. Not really a lot to do. We missed out on a lot of bands coming through. They would come through to Albany, maybe. Um, but even back, you know, prior to having our license you know to get down there it was kind of hard to get rides down there to see so i missed out on a ton of pretty cool shows um in albany but you know i mean we would see some bands come through like they they would play at skidmore at the college there um but even then sometimes it was just like you didn't hear about it until the next day and you're like oh my god that they played on campus shit uh, so yeah, it was isolated. Once we got cars and, and, you know, started traveling a little bit, it wasn't that far down to the city, down to New York, you know, three hours. And then it was also about two hours South of Montreal. So we would go up, I would go up for, with friends a lot to drink because of, it was 18 <laughs> to drink, you know? Uh, so we started doing that when we got a little bit older into our late teens um, and saw some bands up in Montreal, but yeah, isolated, not really much of a scene, a music scene going on as far as like original bands or anything. Um, there was a little bit in the early eighties before our time. Um, but as you got into the mid to late eighties, there was really nothing going on, um, as far as a scene. So we kind of just had to make our own little thing, uh, which was strange. <laughs> How were you, um, like discovering music? Was there a record store in town or did you have to drive those two to three yeah. hours to get to records? No, there was, um, a couple of record stores in town. Um, there was strawberries, which was a chain in the Northeast. Um, and they act, act back in the eighties, they actually were a pretty decent record store for a chain. They had a excellent, um, import section and um they had a lot of cool stuff because they were massachusetts based they had 
a lot of Massachusetts. That's how we found out about like Scruffy the Cat and a lot of Massachusetts bands, neighborhoods, and um, through just going to Strawberries. So they, we had a decent, pretty decent record store for a while. Um, and then there were some really cool record stores in, in Albany that we would go to, uh, World Records. And there was a place called Earl Records that was... Um, that was more like in the early nineties and it was run by these two guys and they, they bought whatever was kind of hip and current. Um, we constantly would go there and have them hold records for us, hold singles. If it was, you know, limited release or something. The other person that, uh, or way that we kind of were fed, whatever was current and needed to be listened to was through Pete's older brother, Phil Donnelly. He was kind of like uh, the guy that the go-to guy for for me and a bunch of people. Uh, he was just kind of ahead of the the flock as far as finding out about new bands and new records. He was like the first, you know. He he had <laughs> he joined the Sub Hop Singles Club like as soon as it started, and he had two subscriptions to it. He had them sending singles to his sister's house and then to his parents' house so he could get two copies of each single. <laughs> um, so he was super into it and, you know, tons of mail order uh, stuff. That So he just turned us on to a lot of stuff early on um, as far as current stuff. Um, but we were, we were kind of, you know, all over the place as far as what we were listening to and buying and stuff. You know? 80s we loved all of the SST you know me puppets and Husker Du of course and all the Minneapolis twin tone stuff we loved um, so that you know that current stuff at the time you, we we just gobbled it up and then going back you know we were discovering I think they did these um, in the mid 80s like 85 or 86 they did these uh Velvet Underground reissues. Um, it seems like for the first time since the, the records were out, and they came out with that record VU, which was a bunch of outtakes and stuff. So we got really into those records, and um, we went. The first band that I saw in a club, you know, because in, in Saratoga they have this amphitheater called SPAC, Saratoga. Uh, performing arts center so you know as kids we would go and see big big shows um at this place uh it was walking distance from where i lived so i went to tons of shows there but i never you know because there weren't really any clubs in the area i never really got to see any bands and clubs until i was about 15 i took a bus to rochester with guy who was in the band and um we went to see the Ramones in this tiny club called Idols. Um, and that was like the first band that we got to see in a club, the Ramones, which was pretty life-changing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> does that does that start your journey to uh, singing and writing songs and playing guitar? No, we were already playing by that point, I think. Pretty... Or, or if not, pretty soon after that. But I, I was already playing drums and guitar way before that happened. But it was definitely one of those moments when you're in a packed club, thinking, "Wow, I want to 
experience this, you know, mm. I want to do this. So you mentioned that you, you thought of you guys as more of an eighties band. Was there recordings? Because I was looking at the, at the history of releases and I, mm. the first thing that I found was the ginger cassette mm-hmm. that comes out in 92. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There was a lot of recordings before that. They just were never released really. Gotcha. Um, it it took a it took a long time for us to to uh, kind of <laughs> get our shit together on that end, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, but you can tell when I was you know and they just uh, a label just reissued Ginger actually for the first time uh, since '92 a couple weeks ago so we've been listening to some of that stuff and it's like oh wow it's just it sounds like growing pains, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of that material, even though it was, that was out in 92, a lot of it was written when we were still in high school, really. So a lot of that stuff goes back to being written when I still lived with my parents and I was still going to school. Um, like, Waste Pretty, that was, you know, that's from, like, I wrote that when I was, like, 17 or something. Um so yeah, there are recordings pr- prior to Ginger, um, but we just had we had no way of getting them released. Um, we we didn't even we couldn't even imagine um, just the idea of you know saving our money, our band money, and and just doing you know putting out a record on our own. It just seems so far <laughs> far fetched or so far out of reach. Right. Um, like I don't think at that time we would even know where to begin to find. Like I didn't even know that you could probably do that. Like contact a pressing plant, and get records made by without being on a label. You know. Sure. Yeah, that's come a, up a lot when we different talk to time. People. You know. Yeah. So the first two releases are both. Uh, so Ginger is is ninety two, and then Ready Steady Stone is mm. ninety three. Those are both cassette releases. Both cassette releases. We had. A forty-five come out right around the time that Ginger came out. Our right. first forty-five. Um, the reason those came out on cassette actually was because we 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 signed with this indie label called Absolute Go Go, who were distributed by Rough Trade. Now that at the time was a big deal to us because they had great distribution. Rough Trade. I mean, it was just such a we were psyched. And of course, as soon as we get that record together, Ginger, and we get the single all prepared, they pull out of the deal. And they, they, they actually, they went under, I think, right. um, yep. all together right at that time. So it's like, oh, shit, now we're on this little label who has, they have no distribution. <laughs> okay, now we're, you know, now we're putting out two cassettes. But it was good for us just to have something to have at shows or, you know, um, and the 45, I mean, we, I don't even know how many were pressed of the first 45, but that was a huge, huge thing for us just to have a record in our hands. It, it was, it was like one of our main goals, you know? Sure. Um, and by that point we had already been a band for like, what, five, six years, five years. Um, so we were slow, which was probably good because it, you know, we, we needed it. We weren't like 
out of the gate, uh, you know, we had a lot of growing pains and even writing. I mean, it took us a long, long, long time to get it to where we were comfortable with, you know, what we were writing and uh, feel, you know, positive and good about it. There's hundreds and hundreds of songs in that period that were just like, oh man, maybe play them twice and then they would just get dumped, you know? That's interesting. Now, so that leads us up to the album that we're we're here to talk about, which is Lo Fi at Society right. High. Now that comes out yep. on I'm I'm I really don't know how to say the name of the label because I've never said it out loud before. I've only read it. Is it Imago or Amago or Amago? Amago. I would have never thought that. Amago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> which I remember that being like a big not a I don't know if it was a huge deal but it was in college radio at the time and there was lots of stuff yep. that was coming out on that label that was really mm-hmm. interesting like Rollins yep. band was on that yeah. label and then later like Paula yeah. Cole would be on on that label yeah she was, was later yeah when we got signed there weren't a ton of people signed but yeah Rollins band Amy Mann um right right that's there the, was a band from oh go ahead uh, baby animals from Australia. They were from Australia. Yeah, yep. we've actually yep. done an episode on them. Oddly enough. Oh, cool. And um, they didn't tell you the right uh, pronunciation of the of the record. No, <laughs> that was not an interview episode. Unfortunately, it would have been interesting to talk to them. But unfortunately, that that was just a revisitation of that record. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you get there. How you get from putting out these cassettes on a label that lost its distribution to signing yeah. with this label that's a good question Uh, yeah um so in 93 we got a demo deal with columbia this guy jim dunbar who i believe was signing like uh gumball firehose uh some cool bands to columbia and he our manager at the time uh, somehow had a connection with him so they gave us some money we went into the studio in jersey and cut these demos for Columbia that I, I, I haven't listened to them forever, but I remember them being fantastic um, and getting excited thinking that we were going to get signed to Columbia, but they passed. So we had this, these demos, I think it was about five songs. And then we went in and we cut a third record. We made another record or we were in the process of making another record when our management um, contacted this A&R guy um, that was working for Amago at the time and sent him the record. I think he sent him everything that we had. So Ginger, Ready, Say Stone, the Columbia demos, and this record that we were kind of in the process of making. And he just dug it and, and said, come to uh, New York and uh, and play for me. So we we go down to New York and we go to SIR Studios um, and just uh, play through a set for this one A and R guy. And uh, we you know, after after we play, he said that that was fantastic. Can you stay an extra day and play for the president? Now the president of Amago was this guy Terry Ellis, who started Chrysalis Records. He basically discovered, you know, Jethro Tull. He started, I think, I think he started Chrysalis Records because he couldn't get 
told Jethro told a, a deal, and so he just said, "Well, I'll just make a label," and you know, I think that's the story. I'm I'm not a hundred percent right, but um, or hundred percent sure. But he, so he, he, he kind of a big big deal. I I knew who he was at the time, so I was like, "Wow, this is pretty heavy." So he comes down the next day and we just play another set in front of now Terry and Matt and uh, he enjoyed it. And he said, okay, now I want to see you in front of, in, in front of an audience. Um, so we arranged for him and some other people from the label to come see, we had a Halloween show booked in Albany and uh, they came out and it, thankfully it just turned out to be like a fantastic, you know, sold out show in Albany Halloween show. So it was kind of wild and we played fantastic and we got off stage and he said, let's do a deal. And that's how we got on Imago. You know, it's funny too, because at the time I remember thinking, um, or I remember reading something about like how we, uh, I think it was an article or a review of the record just saying like, you know, labels are just signing any band that, you know, has just been created or something like that. And I'm thinking we've been together for like seven years already <laughs> at this point, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, so we did put in, you know, we did put in some time before getting signed, you know? Um, but we needed it because we were, we needed more exposure outside of the Northeast and being signed to a manga definitely, you know, helped us with that. So what did that mean when you were signed uh, by them? Did you have a certain amount of records that you needed to do? And what was the plan yeah. from there? Yeah, we did. They gave us a seven record deal. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, which was all kind of unheard of at the time. Um, and so that was October when we signed. Um, and we went right after we did that show, we, we got picked up to do this tour with the Cranberries right as they were kind of breaking. Hmm. We opened this whole leg of the tour, um, which was fantastic. We, I mean, we were playing like that Manhattan ballroom. What was it called? Uh, Midtown. I don't know what it's called now. Uh, but it was, you know, we went out was like 2000 people, probably definitely at that point, the most we played to. And it was, it was, it was great. It, um, really our first kind of tour that, you know, we weren't, we were playing in, in, you know, some serious venues. <laughs> uh, so that was, that kind of was a great kind of prep for us to, to go and have all the material kind of ready to go once we got into the studio. So the, that was at the end of 93. And then in, in 94, we started, um, the label started uh, kind of pitching producers to us. And the first guy that we kind of, we started thinking about was um, they, that they, that the label pitched to us was Mitchell Froome. Um, and so he, he actually came up we were all living in a house together at the time and the band and, um, he traveled up to Saratoga and did pre-production with us, Mitchell Froome. I have a tape of it. And 
although looking back on it, I always think like, wow, that would have been such a different record. You know, I wonder, I wonder what that would have been like. We, we decided to, um, not do it, do it with him because he, he wanted to, uh, rearrange stuff, add bridges. I mean, I, I wish that I had the chance to kind of, obviously now, I wish I had the chance to, to kind of make that record with him. But at the time, these most of the songs that the label had picked for us to record for Lo-Fi, we had already been playing those songs for like four years, some of them five years. Right. So to go in and rewrite them just seemed like such a, you know, just, I, I couldn't do it. Um, so unfortunately, we didn't, pick Mitchell, but um, I'm trying to think of some of the other producers that they... What, what was a the, few other that they picked. What was his vision? Like, because the songs are pretty concise. Was he trying to make them longer? I know. That, well, that was what was weird, was that um, yeah, he, I mean, I just remember we were working on the song Stood Up and uh, I think he, want, he was like, it's too short. You, you need the bridge that kind of yeah. stuff. And I'm, oh. you know, I'm thinking like, I can't go there with this group of songs. It's just, these are, it, it just seems so bizarre to me to rewrite those songs at that point. So then we went with this guy, Don Gaiman, who ended up producing the record. He came up and saw us play a show in Albany and wanted to do the, do it. We, we met him. He, he was super laid back. We just got, got along well right from the, from the start. And um, he, his pitch to us sold us, which was, I want to set you guys up in the studio and you guys play like you're playing a show, basically, you know minimal overdubs um i'll try to capture you know you guys playing so that pitch to us i remember being like oh yes yes this is <laughs> this is what we want for these songs anyway and plus we you know he he had recorded um life's rich pageant rem record he's got a heck of a career i i looked at his yeah yeah so oh, yeah uh Jay, not only did he do the Shaw Blades album that comes out the next year, which I know you're okay. probably a fan of, okay. he did he did Cracked Rear View by the by Hootie and the Blowfish, which is yeah. Well, I have a funny story about that. And so he, when he was making recording our record, he said, you know, I'm, I'm making two records this year, and my psychic, I guess he went to a psychic. He was like, my psychic told me that one of the two records that I'm working on this year will be massive huge <laughs> success and we said oh I, I remember being in the control room and you're saying like well what's the other record you're making and he said oh this band from are they from south carolina or yeah i think so north yeah. Carolina. Yeah. so they're called hootie and the blowfish and i'm and i remember saying to him like well both bands have terrible names but ours <laughs> is not as bad as that name. i said it must be us that's 
that's going to have the huge success. But <laughs> lo and behold, it was not. Wow. But yeah, he did all the John Cougar, you know, the big John Cougar records. And mm-hmm. um, I don't, I, I kind of lost track of what he was doing post the Hootie records. But um, he did some soundtracks um, too, he, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a crazy amount of of work. I mean, it's it, it well into the two mm. thousands. A lot of it is then with like, I think engineering on like greatest hits albums and there's not a lot of like mm-hmm. there's some new stuff here and there with like a few bands but a lot of it ends around the 2000s with, okay uh, maybe he retired yeah he might have that's that's totally possible yeah uh, but we just we had a he just had a very mellow laid-back vibe in the studio which we kind of i think we needed at the time because there was just so much crazy stuff going around in our world that I think his kind of his vibe was very appealing to us. Um, He he didn't come off as like a, you know, pot shit producer, you know, Um, where'd you end up? uh, Where'd you end up recording it? So we did it at, um, well, before we went in with to record it, we did about a month of pre-production by ourselves in in our rehearsal space. Uh, because what happened was, you know, in in my mind, I'm thinking like we're going to go in and cut twelve brand new songs. Well, quickly that was not the case, and the label or like well we pick these songs from ginger and these songs from ready state stone and these songs from the record that you're in the process of making but now you're going to stop making um so as a which you know i it was at the time i remember being very depressed about that idea because we had already some of those songs that ended up being on lo-fi we had already recorded four different times chevy nova stood up cherry blow pop whether they were demos or you know on ready stay stoned or or on the columbia demo or you know it's just there are certain songs where i'm just like oh my god i got it. can we move on and move because that was one thing with the band was that we were all constantly constantly writing there's always new groups of songs appearing that we are trying and testing and rewriting so we you know we were always trying to move forward with material so this seemed to me like a kind of a we're we're going backwards here we should be recording new songs um but you know looking back it's like oh okay they saw potential in, in these songs but and thought we could do better versions of them so i understand it now um at the time I just, I thought they were crazy, but, but we did end up making a deal with them that we would, we would be allowed to record X amount of brand new songs, maybe five brand new songs. And the rest would be ones that they picked from the other records. Um, so we were rehearsing, um, for like a month, January of 94, just every day going down into this rehearsal, you know, it was a basement, basically, and uh, 
trying tons of new stuff, lots of stuff that never was even recorded. Um, and then we went to this place in um, kind of down in the Woodstock area called Dreamland, which was this kind of competing studio with Bearsville, same area, a big church. It was a church at one point. And the control room is where the altar was. They put a control room there. This incredibly beautiful studio. Um, tons of records in the 90s made there. Dinosaur, Buffalo Tom. Um, I think at the time, they, Buffalo Tom was making a record there. No, no, maybe a little bit later after that. But anyway, the, it was a pro, you know, serious studio. It was beautiful. Um, so that that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> Dreamland Studios. So when you said that you record, he you liked that he wanted to get you in the room together. Does that mean everything yeah. is recorded at once, or are you just recording like music at once and then doing the vocals later? So we did we did all of the basics um, all playing together. So we had in the main room where like you know, where the pews had been, we had a whole set up drums set up. My amps were in the vocal booth guys. Amps were in the front, um, front of the church. They had kind of soundproofed off bass. I don't remember where the bass cabinet was to be honest. Um, and we had headphones and I had, I was in the, um, for a lot of it, I was in the, or whoever was singing the song was in the, um, oh, my, no, now I think about it, my amps must have been somewhere else because I do remember being in the vocal booth cutting vocals live with the band. Now, most of the, of the time, we didn't, I would say 80% of the vocals were not kept we went back and re-sang them. Gotcha. Um, sometimes we would <clears throat> try to get a basic and there would just be some guide vocals, um, you know, verse. Here's, you know, I would sing part of the verse just so we knew where we were. Um, but I would say for the, nah, I'd say for the most of the record, we, we, we cut the, we overdubbed the vocals. So, so you're a, mostly a three-piece band, correct, live? Yeah, well, basically the history of the band was that we were a trio when we started, and then we became a quartet for about six years, and then we went back to being a trio. So we've, for the most of our existence, we've been a trio, but at the time of that record, we were a quartet. Uh, okay, because it's a very distinct mm -hmm. two guitar parts on oh, yeah. most of the songs. Yeah. Um and panned pretty far left and right, right? Okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So usually at this point, or at some point when we're talking about the record, we like to talk about what works for us. And Brandon, mm. you had mentioned that you, you like to break this out in the summer. Why does this work for you as a, a summer or a warm weather record? Uh, I get... It might have something to do with when I first saw the band live because that was, you know, summer festival type thing. But really the songs to me just have this kind of like 
almost like early Elvis Costello kind of vibe where it just sounds like they drank a shitload of coffee and then tracked the song. So it's just like <laughs> there's a little bit of punk edge, but it's also kind of like mod a little bit and a little bit power pop. Mm-hmm. And I don't. it's just all good vibes to me. Gotcha. It was released in the summer. It was released at the end of June, I think. Maybe that's why. I, yeah. I have a theory that power pop is is summer music that it's because of the the harmonies and because of the a lot of major chords and stuff like that it just sounds brighter and more i don't want to use i want to say happier but it kind of it just has this vibe of like you want to like it sounds fun and that people associate that with with summer and warm weather and like and i i have the same exact sort of feel about there's a band called czar that they're power pop band from to put out a record in 2000 and I saw them at, you know, like a opening for, it was Duran Duran. Um, it was a weird bill, but it was a summer show. And like, I always break that record out during the summer. Cause it just sounds good driving in my car when it's, you know, with the windows down and stuff. So I can understand that Brendan. I get it. <laughs> I wanted to mention as, as far as one of the things that really worked for me, I love the opening of the record it reminded me of, mm. of of cheap trick opening with um hello and uh hello there like it, it just sets up the record in a way that i think um few bands do that well uh was that an intentional you know thought process when you're putting this together and you mentioned about you know, picking songs off of different records and or having the label do that. Was there a thought to right. how are you going to put it together in terms of track listing? As far as sequencing? Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. I mean, there's certain times when, you know, we're making a record, it's like, I don't know. I usually kind of steer the ship with that aspect of, of making the record sequencing. Um, and there's certain, sometimes there's certain songs you could be in the middle of the sessions and you're cutting the song and I'm thinking, oh, this is the opener right here. We don't even have to, you know, really think about it. I think um, that song was definitely like that, where it's like, oh, yeah, this is going to open the record. In fact, I think that that may have been the case with, you know, we had already recorded a version of that song for the record that I told you that we were kind of in the process of making when we got signed. I think it's same thing. It's like, oh, this is this is a album opener for sure. Just, you know, it starts with the drums. I mean, I think we were just trying to rip off New Day Rising, which is, <laughs> it starts with dr- frantic drums, you know. Yeah, I think that was kind of early on a no-brainer. It's like, oh, that song will be the beginning. But we were just, um, they were, I don't know if you guys were uh, 
I should have sent you this, but there was just a huge article written about this record um, in the in the Saratoga paper. So I did a bunch of interviews for this for that article, and uh, uh, we we were talking a little bit about the sequencing and and about the songs that were left off, and just looking back and you know just uh, wondering why certain songs were left off and why the sequencing was the way it was. Again, to answer a long-winded version that yes that song was kind of decided on early that we were going to use it jay what what worked for you on this record or one thing that at least well everything brandon mentioned i'm with, i'm on board with i love the um i can kind of hear like a joe jackson kind of early 80s new wavy kind of sound mm-hmm. in some of the stuff but also yeah. goes into very um I guess uh, more power pop um, in terms of, you know, hearing some Beatles influence. So something like Jumpstart where um, mm. it's got a really good melodic cook. It's power poppy, but it's got some interesting like bass and drum stuff going on. Um, it's just everything so finely, like really well crafted. I, I'm just um, kind of blown away. At, I suppose it makes sense that you've been working on this material for some of it, maybe for several years. So maybe that's yeah. how you get to that point. Um, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? Like, uh, you know, it, it also doesn't sound um, overly worked. I mean, and there's a lot of energy to it too. So even a song like Chevy Nova, you said mm-hmm. that you wrote, recorded that a couple of times and it actually feels fr- pretty loose. Um, I mean, not in a bad way, but it doesn't feel like <laughs> yeah. over overthought or overproduced. Right. Can you talk about the, like some of the evolution and keeping things fresh? Yeah, sure. Um, well, with that song too, it, it, um, Chevy Nova, it probably sounds loose because at, by that point I was just so burned out on recording it that I was like, okay, here we go again. Um, <laughs> which magically brought that loose feel to it. We weren't <laughs> overthinking a lot of that stuff, you know? Um, sometimes probably even in my head, I know, you know, and I got to kind of say that I've never really even talked to the band about it, but I, I know that this is what I was feeling, which was like, like, sh- I wish we were recording all new songs. I don't know if the rest of the band was feeling that way. <clears throat> we may have talked about it, but it was, you know, 25 years ago. So, um, I don't, I don't, there was probably discussions and debates and arguments about it, but, um, so, so yeah, those songs, um, you know, a chunk of those songs were performed, rehearsed, recorded, performed a lot before we got in there. So it was like, uh, you know, the record was in a way pretty easy to make, but in another way, it was really hard for us to make because we had never been in a studio that pro before with a pro producer and a, you know pro engineer and the label coming in to listen to our progress there was a lot of you know stuff elements about it that we had never experienced before um was was there a no, temptation not pr- to do not anything pressure. to like to was there a temptation to like overdub stuff with regards to like hey maybe i'll do a a cars keyboard part or anything like that uh yeah i mean i don't not so much on that record i think on the next record yeah we were <laughs> we got kooky <laughs> with a lot of the overdubs on the next record but you know i think on this record we kind of did a pretty good job at just sticking to the plan and you know i if anything i'm thinking like 
I haven't listened to the record to be honest in ages, but I I do remember the last time I listened to it thinking like, God, I wish we had gotten some different guitar sounds or something. Maybe, you know, it's like mm. you listen to the record. It's like this pretty much the same guitar sounds throughout, same bass sound, same drum sound. Um, to me, it doesn't necessarily make for a very interesting listen, but my perspective is way out of whack as far as listening to that record. Um, but you know, we, 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 uh, we, we worked hard at that time rehearsing. We rehearsed so much at that time because we were living together and that's all we were doing. Really. If we weren't playing shows, we were hanging out and writing and going down and, and rehearsing and, and, uh, a ton, <laughs> probably an unhealthy amount um but you know it and it sounds like i mean yeah the the record does sound very tight but yeah i I don't know i think that uh i think i forgot what your question was (laughs) no the the method for right i mean yeah the the uh we did we did a lot of work to get to that spot did you uh were you conscious of song length and and getting the songs to be concise and sharp. Were you working on that um, consciously? Um, you mean just for that record or just in general? Yeah. I mean, for the, for this record and that point in your career, I mean, had you gotten to that point where, you know, you were really trying to get things to be sharp and as, as you know, to the point as you could. And, and I guess so. And like I said, there's probably, probably because Don was so used to working with pro musicians that he had, I doubt he had ever recorded a band. So kind of green in the studio as we were, you know? So I'm sure that he was kind of pushing us. I do remember a, a lot of things where he was like, <laughs> there was this time when he liked to spend a lot of time on drum sounds, a lot, uh, unhealthy amount of time um, to where he would change the head on the snare drum constantly. And I remember at the time there was the, uh, the Abbey Road, you know, studio book that had just come out maybe around that time. Mm-hmm. So that was in the control room. And I remember pointing it to him and saying, look at this, Don. And it's like a picture of Ringo's drum head in the studio. And it looks like it hadn't been changed in like five years. I was like, they still got a good <laughs> snare drum sound without, you know, that kind of stuff. He, yeah. I don't think he, he would, had dealt with at the time. Um, and we hadn't on his side of things like, Oh my God, why are we changing the drum heads every 10 takes or whatever, you know? So that kind of stuff I could hear in the record sometimes drum sounds. And it's like, Oh my God, I was just sitting around for eight hours while they were trying <laughs> to get, you know, that kind of, kind of tedious studio stuff that I hate, but it was at a time, you know, when we were, just excited to have the opportunity to have somebody pay for us to be in there recording our songs. You know, um, we were just thrilled and we didn't, we definitely didn't take it for granted. Um, and I know that when the record came out, a lot of people that had heard the other records were kind of like, this is too slick. They had, you know, fans that had been following the band, um, during ready, stay stoned, which is, I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's a, you know, it was recorded in an attic on a um, quarter-inch Fostex um, very quickly, and uh, it has a vibe to it, you know, but it's sloppy and just mic 
falling over and all kinds of crap. So lo-fi was just the kind of the opposite of that. It was very controlled and, and uh, produced, you know. But I think those songs kind of deserve that treatment as well. So I'm glad that we did take the time to do uh, do that. So looking back, I'm glad that they made us do those songs over, you know. Did you uh, did you change any of your guitar gear um, from what you were doing live to when you got in the studio and were trying to get up certain sounds? Um, mm. Were you adjusting that as much? That's a good question. Um, so when we here's to give you kind of an idea a brief idea when we were recording ginger i i didn't own an amp i did not own an amp when we went in and recorded wow. that record i was I, I i was i didn't have enough money to buy an amp so i was borrowing amps from friends and a lot of them were terrible amps um so when i listened to that record all i could hear is like a bad guitar and a bad amp um when we recorded Ready Steady Stoned, I had bought a, I had lucked into buying a 1956 Les Paul. So I had that, and I had my amp that I had as a kid, this Ampeg Reverberocket, um, working again. So I had that, and that sounds, to me, when I listen to that record, I'm like, wow, that sounds so good, that, that combo. But then by the time we got to um, Lo-Fi, I, we had gone out and bought a bunch of new gear. <laughs> we mm. got our first, you know, whatever our first check was from the label and we went, you know, and we had to because our gear was just a, a wreck. It was, it was terrible. We had terrible gear. So I went and I bought an AC30 um, on that record on lo-fi and basically playing, because I don't really remember the studio having a lot of amps they may have, but I was just so into this AC30 that I just bought. I think that my guitar is just all through the AC30, and I bought, at that time, what did I buy? Oh, on the Cranberries tour, I bought this Gibson um, 325, so it's got these mini humbuckers. So I play that a bunch on the record. I bought a Les Paul Special, like a yellow Special with, it had P100s in it. I didn't use that a ton, but um i think I that's my, one on the back cover right yeah yep so that was used on the record i couldn't tell you on what I, I was definitely using it at the time but probably i was i was probably using my les paul the, the 56 les paul the most but i don't again i don't remember and i could hear on the record i don't remember spending a lot of time trying to get different guitar sounds it was more like let's try to get the best guitar sound I can get and just, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just go, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know that on guys and the other guitar player, the same thing, he, you know, he's, he's still, he's, he's still in that mode of that guitar sound lo-fi. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Looking at the back of the record that you mentioned, Brandon, I see the Vox. So mm -hmm. that was literally like your, you it wasn't like a stage. Gear. It was like, you guys got all the new gear and set it up and took a picture. Yeah, which is, yeah. Uh, it's like look at our new gear. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That was actually one of the things yeah. that really stoked me out. Was I remember seeing the live set, and then when I bought the record, I looked on the back cover, and it looked exactly like what I had just seen a few hours before, like identical. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was all the same gear. Pete had just bought that blue bass that he still has, and um, 
I don't know. I don't think Hayes still has that drum kit, but that was like the to- that back line is the basically our touring back line from lo-fi into the next record probably. And yeah, I mean, we, we were like, you know, we went to the music store and we just bought a bunch of gear, which really, like I said, I can't express it enough that we really needed to do that. <laughs> it was money well spent, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm ginger. I was playing my main guitar around the time of ginger was a single one single coil Fender music master two. Um, oh, wow. which I don't know if you guys know those guitars, but they're not the most, especially for a trio, which we were at the time. It's like, I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't <laughs> properly thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought it looked good. So you mentioned, so the record comes out in the summer of 94. You're touring for it. Yeah. What, yes. what, how does the landscape change for you in terms of, you mentioned open for the cranberries. You're playing these mm. now, these like radio station style festivals that oh, are going yeah. on in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does it look like in terms of, are you hearing from the label in terms of like record sales? Are you at all interested in that? Or are you just like out on the road touring and not concerning yourself? How, what is that summer and into fall like for you? Probably more the latter. I mean, we, we, um, you know, we started touring that record in May and pretty much did not finish until Christmas. Maybe a week off somewhere. It was like nonstop. So we, as far as record sales, we knew that the label was happy enough because just the whenever we would pull into a town and there was label people there, there was just a really positive uh, thing going on with the label. The people there, I think most of the staff love the band. Um, and the, everybody was excited about the record and about the band. So that, that we wouldn't, I wasn't super concerned at all, to be honest about how many it was selling. <laughs> Cause we were just very, um, uh, I guess naive in a way to like thinking trying to live in the moment and not think too much about, you know, Oh God, if the record doesn't sell, we're going to get dropped. We were kind of just more like, here we go. We're, you know, we're out on the road and we just made a record. So that's, it was kind of good enough for us at that point. Right. Um, you know, and we, and you know, some of the tour was just just grueling as far as you know playing to nobody or playing to you know big crowds that it was just it would just go from like one night we'd be playing to nobody to the next night we'd be playing at a race track in front of thousands of people that were seemed to be digging it to like the next show being like people throwing shit at us. And then the next show we're playing to a packed club of people that had heard the single on the radio and the show was sold out and we were headlining. It was just constant. Like we didn't know what the next show was going to be like. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Um, but you know, fun and, and, uh, you know, it, and and mostly grueling because we were working so hard, like like we hadn't before. 
Um, the idea, I think, for the, the label is like just get them out on tour and don't let them come home. Um, <laughs> and we and to, to add on top of that, we were we didn't know if we were going to get another. We didn't know if we were going to get if they were going to you know pick up the option to do the next record. Even though we had a seven record deal, they had an option to to drop out of it. Um, so we didn't know if we were going to get more money. So we saved our money. We 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 didn't get a we didn't get a tour bus. We didn't get a huge crew. We didn't you know just dive totally in, which we saw a lot of bands doing that were at our level, which was like you know, oh we just got signed to Sire and we're gonna you know, get a tour bus and just get the huge crew and, and blow all of our advance and blow all of our money. And thankfully we, we didn't do that. We just were very conservative with our money. Um, it, it, it helped us all of that touring just helped us so much as a band. I mean, the time on, you know, when you think about it, when we were on a Mongo and Capital is such a blip in our existence right now because mm-hmm. we're 32 years in, you know? So when I talk about that record or, being on a manga or capital, it was like being on a manga was very important for us because it did get us, it gave us the, um, you know, push into the world that we needed the world of, <laughs> I guess, nineties touring rock band, <laughs> <laughs> which was just a bizarre thing for us. We were kind of also not, we were just not of our time as far as like, you know, we had three singers, but you know, that was something that was confusing, especially with capital. It's like they wanted one person to focus on. And if you think about it, if you think about the early mid nineties, the bulk of the bands had one singer, right? Right. Right. Somebody that could one person that they could focus on. They it's having three singers. was just too much for, and sometimes too much for, audiences that weren't expecting it to be like wait a minute who's the lead singer very few bands from the from beyond the 70s have pulled it off yeah i mean the only other band i can think of at the time yeah but even the 70s there were there was a lot of just one singer bands fleetwood mac and you know that's true yeah i mean the only band that i could think of at that time the other, the only other band that I remember seeing that had more than one singer was Sloan. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. But besides that, I, I you know, I, I, I don't really remember playing with a lot of bands that had numerous writers and singers. The only other know? one that I, comes to mind is the Goo Goo Dolls, but all of um, John Resnick's songs are the songs that are the singles and the videos, whereas mm. Robbie's songs are always the album tracks but it would always be like split pretty evenly on the record. You would just never hear his songs, Robbie's songs on the, on the radio. Yeah. Cause his are the more like punk songs. Whereas, uh, John right. Resnick's are the more like, you know, power pop radio friendly songs. I, I, you know, I was looking at the timeline for when this came out. This is like six months after green days album, uh, Dookie comes out. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, power pop is is can be like a tough market or, or tough uh, uh, sound to market because mm. you know you have to find the right. I think when we're talking about we've done episodes not just on bands but we also like kind of analyzed the genre and how it 
ebbed and flowed throughout the decade. You got a guy like Matthew Sweet who pulled that off with, you know, a number of singles, but then there's a number of quote unquote power pop bands that we, uh, we love, we think they're amazing bands, but they just never connected to a, like a broad audience mm. and, and green day seemed to be the band that like might push that a little bit because they were, even though they were a punk band, they're super melodic. Their songs were often a lot slower than what people think of traditionally as, as punk songs. Like when I come around or, you know, those songs aren't, mm. those aren't fast songs. They're just, they're just melodic. So like, this is actually like the a great time for this record to come out. Was there? You, you mentioned about Imago not picking up the, you know, having the option not picking up the um, the option. So, it was that their decision then that they were like, you know, we're, we're not hearing it, or how did no, that no, out? no, not at all. Just the opposite. We went in the next year and we started making the second record for them um they were all in 100 percent on doing another record and we got maybe a quarter of the way through it and their distribution who was bmg their backer pulled the plug so now that's the end of omago and now we're in the middle of making this record and we don't you know our label is going belly up um so that was kind of a surprise (laughs) um and not only did they want a second record from us but they were letting us basically produce it with we had a our friend eric rachel who's helping us make it but I mean, he at that point he you know we were making we started making that second Mongo record and uh, we were just doing it ourselves basically. So that would have been interesting if they had you know stayed afloat to see what the next kind of thing would have been with them. But it didn't happen, which I think we were all kind of bummed out about because I like I mentioned earlier, there was nothing but really good good vibes from that from the staff there and the even the owner our and our guy loved us uh, we'd go into the offices in new york and everybody was happy to see us it was just a really good time really good relationship with them so we i think we were bummed that you know that happened gotcha. and then you know then we're like we're now what do we do you know but um yeah it's funny two things that you brought up um that i just one, the first thing I just remembered now that you mentioned that the Google Dolls. What's the record? Um, uh, because the label before we went into Make Lo-Fi, one of the producers that they pitched to us, they sent us a copy of the Google Dolls record, um, the Car Wash. What's that record? Superstar Car Wash. Super. Yeah. So whoever produced that, that was one of the guys that they were pitching to us because I remember them sending us that record and us listening to it. But I don't remember who Gavin Gavin McKillop McKillop. Hmm. Um, we obviously passed, but and then the other thing that you mentioned was that we hadn't ever we never even heard Green Day until Pete and I were mixing Lo-Fi with with um, Don. In uh, we mixed that record in L.A. 
And um, while we were mixing, I remember Don bringing in that record, Dookie, and listening to it. And because he must have, somebody must have hipped into it and said, oh, you know, this thing is taken off or whatever, you know, listen to this. But that was the first time I had ever heard them, was just sitting in the studio having Don, you know, kind of reference it. Hmm. Um, so it was funny because we did it. There was obviously because it was just at the same time and everything, there's. Green Day comparisons, you know, up the wazoo. But, you know, I always thought, like, I, we never listened to this band. So, I mean, you know, I, get, I, I was, whenever I would read a review that would mention both bands, I'm like, man, man I don't think they're getting it. No, I don't um, think, I don't think there's a huge musical similarity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with Jay. Like, I hear, you know, influences that are, are much broader than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was here, we did a record in one of our eighties episodes. We did the vapors record, nuclear sounds yeah. or nuclear mm-hmm. day, whatever what the album title was. Like I was hearing stuff of, of like that era of sure. power pop punk, whatever you want to call jam. them. The jam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff is, you know, on rotation in our, you know, when we lived together, we just had all of our records out in this big living room. And, um, you know, lots of parties, tons of, um, record listening, buying, exploring. I mean, that's always been kind of key with us, um, since the beginning, but yeah, I mean, there was no contemporary, I mean, we were definitely, at that point of the band's history, yeah, I hear, I mean, I'm in my writing, I'm listening to tons of Get Happy and, um, you know, of course, Joe Jackson. I mean, all that stuff was super influential to us at that time. Um, and, the, you know, it just also the time, you know, it, it's funny because I look back at that time and I'm thinking like, man, we played, we, tr- we were trying, no matter how hard we tried to play like fast compared to some stuff that was coming out at the time we were playing like <laughs> it, was, it was like mid-tempo basically mm. um so we never really considered ourselves even even though we got lumped into it sometimes a punk band we never really just thought of that and even pow- the power pop thing but i mean with, you know, I love a lot of power pop, but I don't think there was a, a conscious, like we weren't saying that we're a power pop band. We, we never kind of, I think that what threw a lot of people off too. It's like, what is this band? What, what, you know, what, what kind of, what genre can we throw them in? And because we were just kind of, and as our records kind of progressed, became really got all over the place there. Um, we, I think that, that even with the label, I mean, I know with Capital, it's like, what, what is this band? What, what kind of band is this? Um, so there's a lot of things I think that kind of threw people off, threw labels off, um, because we, we tried not to kind of sit in one area. That always seemed kind of dangerous to us if we were like, we're going to be this kind of band, you know, and this is what we're going to kind of stick to. And I think it, it really, in a way, 
at the same time, both helped us and hurt us at times. <laughs> was there a push and pull in the band uh, in terms of direction? Yeah, where you wanted to go. And I mean, I, I hear diff- a lot of different no. flavors on this record. So, yeah, yeah, no, no, there wasn't, and there, there really never has been. I mean, I think that everybody at this point too. I mean, we've never. I think people too, because they. either lost track of the band or um, didn't know that we a, even existed to begin with or um, are just finding out about us now. Um, you know, there's a thing where we, we've kind of just, <laughs> we've just done our own thing and kind of gone down the river, you know, and, and uh, floated by and, and um, you know, I think people, you know, somebody, texted me that I hadn't talked to in years. And they were like, when, when's the figs reunion? And it's like, we've never taken a year off in 32 years. <laughs> we've played shows every year for 32 years and made records the whole time. So, you know, there's that whole kind of aspect of the band's history of, of, you know, <laughs> we, we, it, if it's not completely obvious to people that we've, always played music and written, you know, made records or played shows just because we enjoy it. Um, or we're just like Pete said recently at a rehearsal, like somebody asked him like, you know, how do you guys stay together all these years? It's like it, Pete said, a stubbornness <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, or, or yeah, I mean, we, that's basically the whole thing is that we, we, uh, you know, yeah, I guess we've just been stubborn about it and we've just stayed together. But, um, but you know, power pop thing, it's, it's funny because we're, we, um, sometimes I'll be like, Hey, how come we're never invited into this, some power pop thing, or how come we're never mentioned in this power pop thing? My, you know, my buddy who we make records with, he's like, you guys aren't considered a power pop band. I was like, yeah, but sometimes we are, you know, and, and we have been in the past. Um, but it just kind of comes and goes, you know? Um, and I guess that record, it would be one of them. That's kind of, that would be considered that, you know, um, I guess, I mean, we, we, we are in this, um, we just went to Japan for the first time a couple of years ago and Bonda Macho is in some kind of power pop guide over there. Um, somebody showed it to us years ago. Um, and it's funny because we can't, I don't, I don't even know what it says about the record. It could be completely ragging on the record, but, (laughs) um, I don't think it is because it's in this guide, but, uh, it's interesting because when we were over there, almost at every show, somebody had a copy of this thing and I'm signing the little area where the, where the record's written about, like, is this some kind of like really important uh, power pop guide in uh, in Japan? But and also that's where the you know you know the the name I always thought oh, the name is not doing us really any favors. But you know the Raspberries was a great band. You know yep. they they had a, that name. You know. <laughs> So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. It's it's not specifically to this record, but how do you get hooked up with Graham Parker? Yeah, well, um, 
you can cut out most of that 20 minute ramble that I just did too. You can feel <laughs> free to edit that out. <laughs> um, Graham came about because I grew up listening to Graham. My dad had the first couple records and after he stopped buying them, I started buying, you know, after probably after squeezing out sparks, I started buying the records. So I had known Graham since I was a little kid. Um, and when we were on Capitol, we were playing um, in Atlanta at this place called The Point. And we go, and it's the afternoon, and we're loading in, and I see this poster flyer. It's Graham Parker. And I look at the date, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's today. That's happening today. So he was playing a matinee show at this venue that we were doing the later show at. So we load in our gear and I go up into the dressing room and Graham Parker's standing there changing his guitar strings. So I just went up to him and, Oh man, I'm a big fan, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so then we watched the show and then we were sharing this dressing room. There's only one dressing room in this place. And, uh, I just kind of pestered him about his, <laughs> about his cattle, about his discography. And I think I made an impression like it, he was like, wow, this young, here we are in 1996 and there's this kid in his twenties who knows who I am. I think he was kind of blown away by that. And, and not only that, but he knows every song, all of my songs. So I think I made, I kind of put the blueprint in his mind for, what was to happen about a year after that, he contacted our management and said, uh, I just made this record. I need a band. Would those guys be interested in being my backing band on this tour? And uh, I said, yeah. fuck yeah, I would. And I kind of had the band on it because the band was really didn't know his um, work as, you know, nearly as much as I did. So I, I kind of had to say like, look, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for us you know the the label was like really not into the idea of us going out with Grant. they said what they, they they couldn't wrap their heads around it why we would want to do that um and i was just kind of determined this is going to happen fuck the label i don't care what they think <laughs> which maybe not, wasn't a good good thing but looking back i'm so glad that you know we made that decision to go down that road of being his band and we were his backing band for on and off for like 16 17 years um and we made a bunch of, i made a bunch of records with him pete made a record with him the band made several a studio record with him a bunch of live records with him it was a huge part of our career you know well that's He's awesome a, you know He's a living legend. Right. Yeah, exactly. He he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast, right? It is. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, did you have any additional questions? I know we we're running over our... our... Yeah, no, I'm just, rambling. I'm sorry, guys. No, no, it's the right. only The only thing I, I was wondering about is just, uh, it's been a long time since you made the record, and I, you mentioned you haven't listened to it in a long time, but... Anything about it that you would change? Uh, any songs? Any any way you recorded it? Anything about it that kind of sticks out to you? Makes you regret or what you would do over? There's a song Lynette, which 
we recorded for the record and left off for some stupid reason. It was on this. Do you guys are you guys familiar with the EP that came out after the record? It's called um, Hi-Fi, Hi-Fi Dropouts. Dropouts. Yeah. yeah. So it's on that with a bunch of outtakes. Um, and, you know, I said in this article, I was like, that was a huge mistake of leaving that song off the record. I mean, that could have been a sing- it should have been a single from the record, really, and we just left it off. Um, which I would have totally, you know, if I could go back, I would swap out with the last song, which is Tint, which is a song where it's like, why did we put this on the record? Why did a re- why did we record it for the record? And wh- how did it make the final sequence of the record? that would be the one thing that I would kind of swap out would be put Lynette. I, I may, and also maybe I would have, it was of the time when you're put, you know, bands were putting 15 songs on a record. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was this idea that it was like, uh, even though, I mean, there's the, it fits on, you know, one record. It, uh, there's, you know, seven songs per side on the vinyl, but, um, which isn't that much of a stretch, but, yeah, it was this time when with those two, with that record and the next record, there's on Bonamacho, there's 17 songs on that record. And it was like this thought process of, you know, we may never be able to make another record again. We got to put every song that we have <laughs> right now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, with Lo Fi, it was a combination of like labels saying, like, we want, you know, this group of songs and the band saying like well we want these new songs being on there um which was probably the case with tint which was you know it's new we you know because it's new we want it on the record but looking back that's a one of the songs where i'm like well, how does this end up on the record um yeah, but everything it- else you know i I don't have, I don't know. I, maybe I should listen to it again. I, the nineties records, I don't really go back to and listen to much. I think because we spent so much time with that material over the years that I always feel like I need to kind of get away from it for long chunks of time, you know, to t- kind of hear it. And uh tent is almost seven minutes long, which is odd for the record. Everything else is coming in well under four minutes, three and a half minutes. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, it may have been me just saying, like, we need a long song on this record. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely the weird kind yeah. of odd song out on that record. Um, I don't, yeah, I just, I don't know. There's only one person who's ever yelled that song out for us to play. So <laughs> I, I think I'm I think I'm on to something. With this. Whereas Lynette is like, a, you know, people yell that one out all the time. Um 
which makes me think like, damn, we really dropped the ball on leaving that off the record, but what are you going to do? I mean, I think that, you know, the other weird thing is that that record, it's been 25 years. It's never been reissued, which yeah. is kind of a shame, you know? What's the status with the label not existing anymore? Do you have the rights to it? Yeah. No, I don't. I mean, a few years back, we were kind of talking to some lawyers and stuff about getting the rights to it back, but nothing really happened. I mean, I really think that it's probably a missed opportunity once again, (laughs) which we're good at. Um, As far as, you know, it is part of the band's history and I guess legacy that that record you know um it would be good for it to be reissued and turn you know turn some people onto it that missed it or weren't even around when it came out you know i think that it 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 has the potential to kind of have a new audience you know so hopefully so at some point down the road maybe for the 30th anniversary there you go you got five years to play, to figure that out. Get the lawyers back in the right back in the room, and then we can do an updated uh, thirty year podcast. There you go. Well, I'd love to hear it reissued with, you know, you could do a double album, put the add the EP, your double, and then yep. and then add some extra, you know, maybe the, if there were any other singles with B sides or anything like that or demos. Well, there was, there was, um, there weren't a ton of outtakes there were maybe about three or four other songs that just never, that are just sitting there on, on the reels, you know, right. That never came out. I mean, we did the high fi drawbox thing and that's not even, I'm trying to think of what's even on that. Or maybe you can pair the record with a 10 inch for the EP. That'd be an interesting combo. Now 10 inches are, um, I always find that those 10 inches sound, they don't sound that great. True. Am I, am I crazy? <laughs> no, <laughs> you're right. No, a couple of recent <laughs> ones I, I picked up when, um, like there, there was a replacements 10 inch that came out a couple years ago. Oh yeah. I got that. That, that sounds, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I mean, it's not. Sounds good. Yeah. I think cause the, the vinyl quality tends to be a little bit better now. They're not like as flimsy in some cases. As yeah, that's true. Used to be. Everybody's on the 180 gram, uh, deep groove vinyl. So, the, uh, I've picked I just up some records when, um, you can bend them like they're frisbee, you know, not even frisbees, like they're pieces of paper. Yeah, I know. I just always the, the few ten inches that I have sound terrible. But I remember I bought. I had a choice of when it came out buying the um, black market Clash ten inch or twelve inch, and I was like, oh, this is a no brainer. I'm buying the twelve inch, mm. which you don't see very often, but. I actually have Joe Jackson's "Look Sharp" as the oh, 10 yeah. inch record with the pin. Yeah, does yeah. it have the the pin with it? Yeah. No, I, I it's, it was used, so no. it didn't come with it. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and then the next record, it's like the I have the uh, on the man. It's the singles, it's all forty fives. It's like a little box set. Nice. Yeah. Um, Brandon, was there anything else? We kind of steamrolled you on this episode. Was there anything, anything else no, you wanted no, to bring up? No, no, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I do have one question that I, I was thinking about earlier. Um, the fact that, that um, Lo-Fi wound up being all of these old songs, when you got in to do the next record, Bondo Macho, was that all brand new material, or did you go back to any of the other stuff that you didn't get to use? Great question. Um, that was mostly brand new songs at the time, with the exception of there were two songs that for some strange reason we picked to be on that record from like the first year we were together that we wrote. <laughs> so two songs on Bonamancho are from like 87. We wrote them in like 87 or 88. And I don't know why we were like determined to have those on the, on the record. <laughs> well, the thing that made me think uh, of that is that lo-fi to me sounds so cohesive and it just sounds like one mm, big piece. Like I, I really couldn't tell you most yeah. of the song title names. I just, I know all the words though. Mm -hmm. Whereas Bond and Macho, I mean, I love that record, but also it, it almost sounds like a singles collection. Like every song is so different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I think that was in reaction to what I was saying earlier, which was, you know, just the the kind of way we cut lo-fi was like everything was kind of the same, you know. Right. Yeah, uh, right. and I guess even in material, what we picked with with you know with the label, the material kind of all fit together. But yeah, that's a good observation. That Bon Macho, we we always say that that was like a a comedy record that only the <laughs> band laughed at, <laughs> that only the band understood. But um. Uh. But yeah, there was nothing left over from Lo-Fi that went on to Bon Macho. We were already way past whatever groups of songs. But like on Lo-Fi, like the newer songs were like Tint, Slow Down, um, Charlotte Pipe, Asphalt. Those were all like fairly newer songs. But they fit in, you know, or some of them did, um, to the other, the older group of stuff. Sure. Shot. No, I think Shot, we... Uh, shall we were recording for that uh, we might put out the record on release record that we were working on before Lo Fi um, because there's there's some songs from that record that we didn't even look at for Lo Fi we, we just put aside but if you look at like the tour for Lo Fi we were playing a ton of that stuff from the unreleased record too we we had a lot of I mean, considering it was our first solid year of touring, we had tons of material to play. I mean, I look at set lists from the sh from the Lo-Fi tour. Sometimes we'd play like two songs from Lo-Fi, and when, and it's like <laughs> it's just come out. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We were too far ahead of ourselves with material. That's for sure. Funny, funny. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. And, and getting into this yeah, record and talking about me. this era it was a lot of fun and I want to direct people to the website it's thefigs.net is where you can go to uh, there was just a a reissue of one of the other records I believe or is that is that out Ginger, yet? right? the man who fights himself oh man who fights himself came out on vinyl uh, and it was like remixed um, that was a couple years ago though oh, okay. I guess we need to update our site that's on the front. Yeah, that's on the front page. That's right. That's 2017. Um, yeah. So Ginger just came out on vinyl for the first time a couple of weeks ago, um, and then we have our next record, kind of almost finished. We're just mastering it right now. 
And then, of course, you can go on the, the Facebook and uh, find him on there yeah. as well. And mm-hmm. uh, is there a Twitter? Can people find you on the Twitter? The, at, is it at yep. Figs? Yep. Yeah, I think, or I think it's the Figs. Yes. At the Figs. Yep. Yeah, we're not. Um, we're all busy parents, so our social media presence is uh, questionable at times. <laughs> I find, <laughs> I'm like, oh, did we announce those shows? And just like what you just said, the man who fights himself. I mean, that came out like three years ago or something. <laughs> That's all right. Kids get in. Kids get into the picture, and and websites go out the window. It it, yeah. uh, it adds to the mystique around the band. Right, <laughs> right, right. A rare uh, social me- media posting. Right. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, all right. I'm gonna go to bed. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank you for letting us go a little long, and uh, we greatly appreciate it. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, paying attention to that to that record. Oh yeah. Still a classic, man. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun revisiting this record uh, for Jay and I. So I'm glad we got to do this. Um, I just want to remind people who are listening that they can go to uh, Patreon to become a patron, uh, and also iTunes for the feedback and uh, leave us a review there. So this would be a good time to wrap up the recording part of this, and I'll just say the normal. Uh, outro which is uh, for Jay I'm Tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out thanks for listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook Twitter and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com What's left behind her?